the book of 1 Thessalonians, which is back there by Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and before Timothy and Titus. We have one week left in 1 Thessalonians. A couple of weeks ago, we finished up the text of the book. Now we're going to conclude the book itself in the sermon series. So we're going to read the entire book of 1 Thessalonians. Just seeing if you're listening. All right, we're going to read the beginning of the book and the end of the book. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. This is the word of the Lord. We give thanks to God for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and the endurance that you have that is inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're going to read the end of the book in chapter 5, starting in verse 23. Now may, the God, now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify your whole spirit, soul, and body, that you may be found holy and blameless before the Lord Jesus when he comes with all his holy ones. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this book, I pray that you would help us to bring to summation in our own minds and our own hearts what we've learned in 1 Thessalonians, that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear, and then hearts that receive and hands and feet that are ready to do this text and the imitating life of discipleship that it has taught us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We've probably all heard some version of that tongue-in-cheek comment, Lord, I pray that you would give me patience. Do it right now. First Thessalonians might have a version of that. It's a little bit different. It might be something like, Lord, please make me holy and blameless and ready for you to come back and get me. And please do that right now. Right? We all feel that, I think, in varying degrees at different times. That cry, come Lord Jesus. But that's a biblical cry. It's a godly desire. It's how the whole story of the Bible ends, right? The, the story of Scripture ends with the church crying out for her Savior to come and get her. But I think often when we're saying, come Lord Jesus, that cry is not by, from a passionate desire to be with our Savior and see Him face to face. It's more of a, I'm really sick and tired of this. And I'm worn out. And I'm ready to just be done. And I don't know if I'm going to make it to the finish line, Lord, so could you move the finish line over to me so we can be finished? Right? It's a little too, have a life of being and making disciples, it's gotten a little hard. And I just want to get to that good stuff at the end. But I think First Thessalonians has taught us something different than that. It's taught us that a life of being and making disciples is actually a life of thanksgiving. It's a life of celebration. In a life of being and making disciples, it's one of imitating Jesus. Who wouldn't want to do that? And following others who imitate him. A life of being and making disciples, it's one building close personal relationships so that we can coach each other and comfort each other and charge each other to finish the race. And that kind of life is also one where we receive instruction to help keep us taking steps to the right to grow and mature in faith all the rest of our lives. From the beginning to the end, we take steps to the right. And brothers and sisters, that means the life of discipleship is not a short circuit, let's have Jesus just come back. It's the long game. It's the long game. 
And as we concluded the text of 1 Thessalonians a couple of weeks ago, remember we, we listened to Benjamin Warfield and him talking about why is it that sanctification takes so long? Why does it have to be the rest of my life? And he said, because it's a way that God has designed for us to learn his mercy and understand his grace in a way that we just couldn't get any other way. And so we have the long road, the long game of discipleship, and we get to know our God in a way we wouldn't in any other fashion. And that is a grace and a mercy from him. That's the long game of discipleship that First Thessalonians has been teaching us about. I want to tell you a story this morning. So this sermon is not a normal sermon. We're not going to go through a text from beginning to end like we usually do. This is a summary sermon. It's the end of the sermon series. I want to tell you a story about the long game of discipleship. Once upon a time, about 30 years ago, in a magical, mythical kingdom called the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, a glorious kingdom, there was a group of people, young students, who gathered themselves together, right? And knowing even that the earthly glory of the kingdom was great and its football team was dominating, knowing even then that earthly glory fades and there's something of eternal value, they gathered together to begin to learn more about this God who had pulled them together in that time and that place with a group of, of men and women who taught them and trained them to be disciples and who taught them and trained them to equip other people to be disciples too, to be and to make disciples. These navigators, they were called. These navigators, staff people, knew that they wouldn't see a lot of benefit from their work in the mythical kingdom because their students would be graduating soon and moving on, and they wouldn't get to see the benefit or the fruit of what they'd done because that was going to happen later in life as they left. But they were committed to the long game of discipleship, so they went about their ordinary daily grind of college campus ministry and the navigators. And they taught these students, this group, things like how to study the Bible and how to pray and how to share the gospel with other people so they could understand it. And then they taught them to teach other people how to study the Bible and how to teach other people how to pray and how to teach other people to share the gospel so that people could hear it and respond to it. And then they sent them out and made them practice those things over and over and over and over in community with each other so they could do things like debrief and see how it went and then get better at it over time. They also shared their lives and their homes with these students. So we got to see what Christian marriage and family looked like for those of us who weren't from Christian homes because we got to be in their house and sit at their table and watch them raise their kids. Right? And they got up early and they stayed up late because that's the only way you can relate to college students. The middle of the day doesn't work, but the beginning and mostly the end works really well so that they could share not just the gospel but their lives with us as well the people to whom they were preaching and teaching the gospel, and they raised their own support so they wouldn't abur- weren't a burden to us, right? All of these things should sound a lot like First Thessalonians. So I want to show you actually a visual reference. I don't usually use visual stuff during my sermons. I'm going to this morning. So I'm going to show you a picture of the group I'm talking about right there. See them? Does that come up okay on the screen? These are the group of people in that mystical kingdom of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln 30 years ago. And you see two people are circled. The handsome young man is me. And the beautiful young woman is my wife. And that was some years before we had any idea we were going to be married and spend the rest of our lives together. But there we are. It's a group of about 30 people. And I'm not showing you that so you can see how beautiful we used to be. Or still are, I mean. Still are. 
I want you to see it because these are ordinary people. There's nothing particularly interesting or extraordinary about anybody in that picture. These are just ordinary, average college students who were trained and equipped and discipled by sharing the gospel and by sharing life together at the University of Nebraska and the Navigators. These are the people with whom the staff were playing the long game of discipleship. Okay? Now I'm going to fast forward 30 years to present day life. Of those 30 people there, more or less, there are eight pastors about seven of them in the PCA, which is a coincidence that was not designed at the time. Most of us are of the seven, so there are eight, eight pastors. There are several pastors' wives in that picture. There's a Bible college professor in that picture. There's campus ministry workers. There are missionaries. And actually, there's somebody there just below me whom I just got caught up with. He was in town and called me, and we had lunch a couple of weeks ago. I had, he's working at Covenant Seminary, serving our denomination in our seminary. I had no idea that he was doing that. So of these people in that picture, there's about 30 of us, there's only one of them whom we know of who is not walking with Jesus anymore 30 years later. That's remarkable. That's unusual. That's the long game of 1 Thessalonians discipleship. It's not quick, it's not easy, and it's not particularly epic or amazing or mountaintop. It doesn't give fruit right now. But it's how God has designed the ordinary ministry of his church to work. And it does work. And in fact, if you'll hit the space bar, that guy right there, you've heard me talk about Bob Walls a few times. He's one of my main mentors in life, right? So if you want someone to blame, Bob would be one of the people you can blame. I'm not going to give you his phone number. Bob was one of my main mentors in life. About two years ago, we had a surprise party for him. He had been in, he's been in ministry a little over 40 years. It was his 40-year anniversary in ministry, he and Sandy. And so a bunch of us, with the collaboration of his wife, whom he's discipled through the years, got together. And we all had a party for him down in Lincoln. There were hundreds of people at that party. And that was only a fraction of the people he's met with. There were hundreds of people there, a few of them older than I am, most of them younger than I am, who he and Sandy had spent their lives discipling. And if you think about it, every one of the hundred people there has their own relational grid, where they were doing what they'd been trained to do with their families and their kids and their friends and their coworkers and in their churches. So there were actually thousands of relationships represented with by the hundreds of people who were in the room. Bob and Sandy's life, it was not easy. It has not been a panacea. They've been through a lot. Their work has been opposed. There have been no shortcuts to it. But this is how God designed ministry to work, so that just two people have influenced hundreds and hundreds of people personally and thousands and thousands of people indirectly over the course of their life in ministry. Thanks. That's what First Thessalonians has been teaching us, and I thought a picture might help us to see the ongoing life of tender discipleship that we're, we're learning in this book that comes from believer-sanctifying and God-glorifying work that's produced by faith and from coaching and comforting and charging laborers that come from love and from the eschatological hope that gives us endurance to persevere this because Jesus is coming back to bring all of his holy ones together with him forever. The picture and the stories, I hope, help bring the point home. This is not a theory, this book. This is how the church does ministry. This is what make disciples of the nations means. One person at a time. This is the mission of the church being done one church at a time. 
So two weeks ago, we finished our last text in the book. Now we're going to finish our study in the book. When I was taught to do Bible study, and I'm going to teach you to do it exactly the same way, I was taught you're actually not done with Bible study until you've done something about it. Because the Bible is a book that is a message. It's not just an intellectual little tome that you can write a PhD about or study to get smarter. It means to inform and shape and change the way you live. And so you're not done doing Bible study until you've done something about it. So that's this sermon. This is a let's do something about it sermon. We're going to do, we're going to look at four main themes from the book of 1 Thessalonians and talk about what we can do about this book. And you'll see the outline in your bulletin. The four main themes or threads we're pulling on that we've seen in this book are give thanks, have an attitude of joyful gratitude. That's why we started our service with Thanksgiving today. Become imitators, the life of diligent discipleship. Live now, now we live, godly motivation for what we're doing. And every day until the day, the eschatological or end times or final long-term vision we have to be able to stay in the race and be faithful. And if you notice, those four themes actually take us through the book, beginning to end in order as well. So let's start with them and work our way back. So if you remember, let's begin with week of thanks. If you remember when we began First Thessalonians, we, we read it just a second ago. Paul says, We give thanks to our God and Father all the time, remembering before our God and Father your work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope. And remember, Thanksgiving does two different things in this letter. It shows who we love and what we believe. That's the first thing. You learn a lot about people by what they're thankful for. right? You can learn a lot about a church by what we celebrate together. What is it we celebrate? What are we thankful for? It tells us what we love. It also shows and shapes what we believe as well. When we deliberately and intentionally give thanksgiving for things, that shapes us. It shapes what we believe. It shapes what we love so that what we say and what we really believe line up more closely together. So here's one way I've been obeying this part of 1 Thessalonians and thanksgiving. I've been doing deliberate thanksgiving in my quiet times in the morning. So I journal most days. I sit and write out and journal. It's just a way that I think on paper. And I set aside now time in my journaling to give thanks, deliberately to just sit down and have a journal entry that's, I'm thankful for this and for this and for you and for this person and for that person and for this thing. I just deliberately write it out. And that helps me in three different ways, that gospel habit. And I would commend it to you. It helps me because it helps shape what I really think is important, right? As I intentionally thank God for what he's been up to, and I make sure that I thank him for the things that we would usually call good and the things that we would usually call bad because they're both from his hand, and I want to be thankful for whatever he gives me. That helps shape my affections to be more like Jesus' affections so that I'm loving what he's loving. The second thing that helps me because I'm writing it down, and this is where the writing down part helps me personally, it shows me what's actually going on in my heart so that when I'm done and I go reread it and I can go, oh, sometimes, right? It reveals what I'm really thankful for, what I really care about. And if there's something there that needs to be, some sin that needs to be weakened, right? Some self-sufficiency or some self-consumed or some self-seeking that's going on, it's easier to see when it's written down and it helps me to repent and shape me from who I am in my, the midst of my thanksgiving. And third, It reminds me of the work produced by faith and labor prompted by love and endurance inspired by hope that I see going on around me. And I need that, right? Because this is a long game, right? 
And sometimes it's easy to get cynical or calloused in it. Our vocation together of being and making disciples, right? And that's our vocation. It's not my vocation. It's our vocation of being and making disciples. It's hard enough. It's hard enough on its own. And sometimes I end up just getting cynical about it. I imagine you do. It's like, well, am I do, am I, is anything I'm doing matter at all? Is this making any difference? Right? Or I get calloused about it. And I just want to be tempted to stop caring about whether or not people are maturing or whether they're growing in Christ. And I've heard a lot of people in this vocation say the same kinds of things over the years. I just, this is just too hard. I have had people say this to me, walking with Jesus, it's too much work. I've got other things to do now with my life. I'm too busy. So stop talking to me about that. I don't want to mess with Jesus anymore. I'm busy doing other stuff, right? That's becoming cynical and callous. This is hard work. Thanksgiving helps us not become that. It certainly helps me not become that by showing what's really going on in my heart and then by shaping it to line it up more with Jesus' affections for me and for his church. So I would encourage you, one way you can obey First Thess is do some deliberate Thanksgiving and enjoy that. Find a way to do it, whether it's writing it down like I do or some other fashion that makes you stop and think about what you're saying and consider what you're thankful for. And then let it shape your affections to be more like Christ so that what you really love and what you really believe get closer together. And they get closer together with what Jesus loves and believes as well. So that's one way that I think we can obey 1 Thessalonians. Let's do deliberate thanksgiving on purpose. Here's our second theme. You became imitators, diligent discipleship. This is the heart of the book, I think. Chapter 1, verse 6 begins it, and it builds through the whole book. You became imitators of us and of those who imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. And First Thess has been teaching us that learning Jesus, taking steps to the right sometimes we call it, helping people grow and mature in Christ, and then doing this ourselves and helping other people do it, that requires relationship. It requires relationship. Discipleship relationships are to be personal and genuine, real, trusting, and faithful, and committed, preferably long-term, because discipleship is a long game. Discipleship requires relationship. And for here us at Grace Covenant, I think the obedience to this text is going to come precisely in this way, that we intentionally, over time, build relationships with each other that are personal and genuine. That means you're going to have to trust each other and be faithful to each other. And we're going to need to do it for the long haul. And if we actively resist that kind of relationship with other Christians, that brother and sister, remember the family language he uses, brother and sister and mother and father kind of relationship, or if we passively resist it by simply refusing to pursue it and do anything about it, here's what's true. We won't be being disciples and we won't be making them here. Because this is critical for the being and making of disciples. It's at the center of obeying First Thessalonians. Our desires and our affections and becoming those of Jesus's. The same sharing with Jesus's desires and affections to make disciples of the nations as we go, as we teach, as we baptize. 
That's what we want to celebrate and give thanks for. That's what we want to imitate here. And we want to long for the kind of life that Scripture is talking about. Right? The, what's the quintessential mark of the gospel's work in the people of God, according to Jesus in John 13? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That sounds like personal, genuine, trusting, faithful relationships to me. Paul writes in 1 Thess 4, to this church, remember what he says, you already know how to love one another and everybody else. So what we're saying to you is, so keep doing that. Just abound in it more and more. Don't be satisfied with where you're at. Keep growing. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. Discipleship requires relationship. And it happens in the context of daily life. It's what we learned in what we call the with him principle. Remember that? Discipleship happens in Christ with him. At Bob and Sandy's 40th ministry party that I mentioned earlier in the sermon, Bob had to give an impromptu speech, right? Because you always have to give an impromptu speech at these things. And that wasn't hard for him because I don't know how many times he's spoken in 40 years of ministry, but a lot. But I think impromptu speeches are interesting because they show what you're actually thinking right? Because you haven't had time to prepare. They show what's really on your heart. And for this Thanksgiving, this speech for Bob, it was a Thanksgiving speech. So it turned into a chance for Bob to thank people for letting him minister to them. That's essentially was the content of his speech. Part of what he said during that was, the credit for this doesn't go to me. None of the credit for this ministry is mine. If you've participated with us in any way, if you've given to us, if you've worked with us, if you've prayed for us, when you get before the throne of God, this is to your credit. My ministry is all for you. It's about his glory. This has nothing to do with me. That was his attitude. He understands that discipleship ministry doesn't happen alone. And it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And you can't just do it by yourself. It's the long game, and it's the game the whole church has to play. Not only is it with him, it's also needs you. Remember, those are the three phrases we learned. In Christ, with him, and needs you. So if we're going to enjoy the long game of discipleship, as First Thessalonians has taught us, it has two other things to say to us, I think. We need to understand... The discipleship ministry is not, think Christian formation now, is not the next big thing. It's not an epic, it's not going to feed your need for a new epic mountaintop experience. That's not what this text has taught us. Because First Thessalonians has taught us discipleship is done in what kind of context? Usually, what did Paul do during, that, during his time at Thessalonica, right? Was it all just fun and games? It's usually opposed and happens in the midst of persecution, and involves suffering sooner or later. It's not an epic mountaintop experience. It's ordinary daily life in the kingdom. Right? If you want epic, don't do this. But if you want faithful and joyful Christian life, if you want to follow Jesus and have his same heart and affections, then the life of being a disciple and making disciples, that's the one for you. It's not epic. It's ordinary. And the second thing we need to understand is that these relationships we must deliberately build to have imitating life of discipleship together, they cannot be self-centered. 
ordinary in Christian formation has talked about this as well, that we've been taught sometimes in culture that life is a stage upon us, upon which we get to perform, right? And so I, whatever I'm at, I get to be in the spotlight and be on my little stage, and your job is to affirm my performance, and my job is to affirm your performance. Well, that has nothing to do with gospel ministry. How does Paul minister in Thessalonica? They weren't interested in promoting themselves at all. We're not here to please men. We're not here to please you. We're only here to please God. They're interested in putting Jesus Christ on the stage and Jesus Christ in the spotlight. That's what being and making disciples does, right? That's the work of the Holy Spirit in a nutshell. What does the Holy Spirit do with the Word of God? He shines a light on the sun so you can see the glory and the beauty of the sun and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And what does the Son do with all of the glory He gets from doing the Father's will to redeem people for Him? He hands the kingdom over to His Father and says, this is all for you. Look at how the Trinity relates and the way they're spending all of their time glorifying and honoring each other. By this the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so the relationships in the church are to be like those in the Trinity. Shine the light on Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit for the glory of the Father. That's what we're up to. I think this is the most critical spot in the book for us. For us to be and make disciples, like First Thess has taught us, we need to build these relationships that this book is talking about inside the church, and we have to build them outside the church. And that will require a deliberate choice by each of us. I want to make that a little bit more tangible to you and break it down into a couple smaller pieces. Because sometimes big things make more sense in small chunks. So I want to show you a second picture. I have two pictures today. Here's my second picture. You've seen this one before too. It comes from the Vine Project. And it captures what we want to do in being and making disciples at Grace Covenant. So take a look at the chart. See how it moves from left to right? That's why we talk about taking steps to the right. Your job in making disciples with him as we need you with one another is in one of two kingdoms. On the left, it's your left too, right? Yes. As long as I'm not looking at this in a mirror, we're good. On your left is the kingdom of darkness, people who do not yet believe in Jesus Christ and are lost in their sin. If you're going to make disciples there, you do one of the two E's. You engage them and build a friendship and a relationship with them. And then you evangelize so that they clearly understand and hear the gospel. You're not looking for the whole leap all the way to the cross. You're just looking for one step to the right at a time. Just one step. That's your job, right? Not, the, not every step. You work with the Holy Spirit to just help somebody take one step, whether it's engaging them or evangelizing them. And the same thing, we also do discipleship in the kingdom of light. That's on your right, where everybody has a little Christ learner, L, over their head. That's not loser. It's learner. They're learning Jesus Christ, and they're taking steps to the right too. So how do you do that? You establish them. That's helping, that's helping someone become a better reader of the Bible, or learn a skill, or mortify their sin, or have their affections more conformed to Jesus in any way, growing in Christ one step at a time. And equipping means getting training yourself to train someone else to do the same thing. So if you're equipping somebody, you're teaching them how to share the gospel. You're teaching them how to study the Bible. You're teaching them how to pray, right? Establishing is growing yourself, and equipping is teaching someone else to do the same work. 
I hope that breaks it down a little bit more. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about being and making disciples. And one, either in the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. It's both the same. And the goal is the end of the arrow where everybody who's a Christian who believes in Jesus as their Savior is gathered around his throne worshiping him forever. That's the goal. That's the hope. That's what that little cloud is over here on the whichever way it is for you. This direction. Does that make sense? Those are the four E's of disciple-making ministry. You engage the lost, and you have to do all four together as a church. We engage the lost, we evangelize the lost, we establish the found, and we equip them to do ministry themselves one step at a time. Thank you. So the best way you can do that at Grace Covenant, I think, join a small group. That's where discipleship happens here, in the context of small group ministry. And once you're in a small group, get a Paul and a Timothy. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Get a Paul and a Timothy. So a Paul is someone who's older, more mature than you are in the faith, who can teach and train and equip you to help you grow. And a Timothy is someone who's younger than you are in the faith, who you can help grow themselves. So everybody, I would encourage you, you need a Paul, somebody who's mentoring and helping you grow. And you need a Timothy, someone whom you're mentoring and discipling and helping to grow too. So join a small group, get a Paul and a Timothy, and then just start living the ordinary life of being a disciple and then teaching other people to do the same. That's what First Thess has been teaching us. That's the long game of discipleship. Third theme, and these last two will go a little more quickly. Third theme comes from First Thess 3.8. Now we really live. Now we really live that you're standing firm in your faith. And I hope you remember how that struck you when we first studied it. Look at how emotional he is and how adamant he is that they're being and making disciples. Look how important it is. Verse 6 of chapter 3, he calls it good news. It's the only place he uses the term gospel where he doesn't mean the gospel. It's so important to him that the church is being and making disciples that he calls it, this is just as good as the gospel. This is good news. He is passionate that this church stay on mission. It's the reason he founded them. It's the reason they exist. Now we live. Because you're engaging the lost and sharing the gospel and establishing believers and equipping them to make disciples. That's our very life. And notice that Paul is saying it again, not to be self-serving and not to be self-advancing. Right? If you look at the end of chapter 2, look at what he says at the end of chapter 2. He says, for you are our joy and our crown. This is why he cares so much that the church is doing well. What he means is this. These people are his present for Christ. When he gets to see Jesus face to face, he loves his Savior so much. Remember the beginning of Ephesians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ because he chose us and loved us and predestined us and forgave us and redeemed us and sealed us. And I think I missed adopted in there. He's done all of this for us. He's traded himself for me. I want to bring him something when I get to see him face to face. What can I give him as a present? I know it'll be the people that I've discipled to walk with him. 
That's what Paul's going to give as a gift to Jesus when he sees him. You are our joy. You are our crown. So he cares very much that the church is doing well because he's going to offer them to the risen Lord as his, thank you for saving me. Here's what I've done with my life for you. Does that make sense? How about you? When Bob Walls gets to stand before the throne... I'm going to be part of the present. He gives Jesus, and so will my wife. Who are you giving Jesus as your present? When you get to see him face to face, here's what I've done. Here are the people that are walking with you because the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and prayer have brought them along through me. Doesn't that fire you up? That fires me up. That keeps me going. This is our vocation. Whatever it is we do in normal daily life, this is our vocation. Being and making disciples. And that leads us to the fourth main theme of the book, I think. Do it every day until capital the capital day comes. What First Thessalonians has been teaching us about ordinary everyday life This is what it looks like for people who follow Jesus. We learn, remember, that not all ministry, gospel ministry, is vocational. But all vocation is gospel ministry, right? Not everything you do is full-time paid ministry work, but whatever you're doing is gospel ministry. Whatever your call is, whatever you spend your day doing now, Jesus has called us together as a church so that we are engaging the lost and evangelizing them with the gospel and establishing those who are in Christ and then equipping believers so they can go do all of the other work of ministry. We're supposed to be doing this for the rest of our lives. And my friends, there is no plan B. This is it. It's either this or nothing. There is no other way. This is the life of the church. You know, there are a lot of things Bob and Sandy wanted to do with their lives. They're very talented, very sharp, very creative people. They could have made their way to success and fame and probably fortune if they'd wanted to do so. But they decided to do what First Thess 4 says. They decided to live quiet lives and mind their own business and work hard with their hands to imitate Jesus and teach other people to imitate Jesus. I have no idea who I would be if they hadn't done that with me. Nothing flashy, nothing fabulous, nothing famous. Just hard and joyful and opposed and spirit-empowered work calling the lost and training the found to know Jesus and to make him known. That's ordinary Christian life. That's what this book wants us to do about it. It wants us to do something. This is what it wants us to do. Deliberate thanksgiving that shows and shapes who we love and what we believe. Building relationships that are required for the life of imitating discipleship. Orienting our vocation and life purpose to be, this is why I live, to make disciples. For God's glory and neighbor's good and doing it joyfully until that day when it's over and we see him face to face. 
my friends, this is the way. This is the way. This is our call to obedience from this text. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you take this word of God, use it to conform us to the affections and the loves and the desires and the plan of the Son of God. Do this so that as we stand before the throne, God would be glorified and we may enjoy him forever. And we would do that with a number of saints who have come before the throne because we have been faithful to be and to make disciples here in this place at this time. We ask this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.